Welcome to Season 1 of Blue Medicine Journal, a Jungian podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sandra Luz del Castillo, a Jungian mentor, ritual artist, and dreamer, coming to you from out of the blue. moment to cultivate the images arising from our hearts and souls as we begin to imagine a new world into being. Welcome to the Wild Blue Yonder. Today's episode, called Raven, Shadow, and Postpartum Blues, contemplates the loss of the maiden archetype in the transition to motherhood, a crucial rite of passage overlooked and unconsciously mourned in Western modernity. This is part of a series of Season 1 in which we've explored art and Jungian depth psychology as healing modalities for peri- and postpartum mood and anxiety disorders, or PMADs, their acronym. Raven, Trickster, and Shapeshifter is our guide this new moon through the darkness of postpartum blues. Our raven lore includes the Tlingit creation myth, and Edgar Allan's po- Edgar Allan Poe's classic poem by that name, as well as my own Raven stories, and a dream that foreshadowed my postpartum blues in the Netherlands. First, a word about the shadow in Jungian terms. In brief, the shadow is the dark aspects of the personality. Those wounded, traumatized, frightened, and mean parts of ourselves we reject and bury. The shadow is emotionally charged, usually with our baser instincts, and always present. The more deeply buried it is, the more autonomous it becomes. When triggered, or constellated, the shadow pops up to embarrass us at best. And it can turn savage. Think jealousy. It's a perfect example of the shadow's autonomy. Until it is made conscious, the shadow is projected outward. And there is no moral accountability. Instead, the person or event who triggered the shadow is blamed. And when the shadow is collective, countries go to war. One of the darkest shadows in human history is the Inquisition. Demonizing women was a way for the celibate men of the Catholic Church to deal with their terror of women and their sexuality. As Jungian analyst Lionel Corbett tells us, the Inquisition showed how some men could project their own psychological disorders and vices onto others, purging them in projection instead of confronting their inner difficulties or shadow. In the name of Christ, the worst torture devices in human history were created during the Inquisition, which spread across centuries and continents, ensuring patriarchal control. The collective trauma and repercussion still ripple across the globe. 
That said, when the, consci- when the shadow is consciously brought to light, with all its dreadful feeling tones, we take moral accountability and begin to integrate our shadow rather than project it outwards. And with that, we turn to our creation myth. First, an acknowledgement and thank you to the Tlingit people of the Pacific Northwest Coast for their story I share today. Aho! And Ache, may your people and wisdom thrive. And now, how Raven stole the sun. In the beginning, when the world was still in darkness, Raven spread his wings and glided over peaks and vales, surveying all he came upon with a keen eye, for he was far too curious to let the darkness stop him. On and on Raven flew, until at last he found it. He didn't even know he had been looking for it until that moment. And then suddenly there it was. A light was sparkling in all that darkness, far away and in the distance. His heart quickened, and hastening his wings, he set out at once over the majestic mountains and through the air. Like many tricksters, Raven could travel between worlds. This time, he had wandered so far in the darkness, he didn't realize that he was looking at the chief's house. That was the source of the light. His heart jumped with excitement because of this light that was shining from within. Spying an accommodating branch, Raven came in for a landing in a tall pine tree that overlooked the house. Back then, Raven's feathers were all white, so he must have been quite a sight to behold in all that darkness. A twinkling lit his bottomless eyes. Bewitched by the glow within, Raven decided he must have it for his own. And being a trickster, he decided to steal it. And so, waiting from his perch, he sat and improvised. Suddenly, the front door creaked open. A light was cast within a, within a silhouette on the young woman who came out. It was the Sky Chief's daughter. We don't know how she looked, they say, because it was too dark to tell. But cocking his head, Raven noticed she was carrying a, t- a tight-knit basket. He watched her as she walked down to the lake shore and reminded him of a deer. Then suddenly she squatted down and the maiden scooped the basket into the dark water and drank. At last, Raven's Raven's moment had arrived, and quickly he shapeshifted into a pine needle and fell down into her basket of water. Without noticing, the maiden drank the water, and the pine needle flowed softly down to her womb. In that moment, Sky Chief's daughter became pregnant with Raven. Later, when he was born, little Raven had shape-shifted into an odd-looking boy with a beak-like nose and feathers that grew on his head and shoulders and patches across his body and on his ankles. Sky Chief was so enamored, though, of his grandson that he paid no heed to his odd features, 
and played with him endlessly, making him toys and chortling gleefully over his grandson's antics. All the while, little raven boy sought high and low for the light until at last he spotted it. A delicately carved wooden box was tucked away atop a high shelf. The glowing light emerged from it. Now was his moment. Then, to his mother's surprise, Raven Baby began jumping up and down and pointing to the box of light and calling out frantically, Ka, ka, ka. The mother grew startled. She'd never seen her little one behave like that. As fate would have it, the beautifully carved box of light belonged to Sky Chief, and he guarded it jealously. But Raven Boy would have his way. And so it continued, the crying and cawing and pointing frantically at the box. The mother, not knowing how to comfort him, looked pleadingly at her father, until finally Sky Chief gave in, albeit reluctantly. All right, he said, but I'm only opening one box. You can play with the lights, and then we will put them back in their box and close the lid. Hmm thought Raven Boy. Only one box? There must be more. And sure enough, when Sky Chief opened the large box, a series of boxes rested within other boxes, like nesting dolls, but they were boxes of light. Imagine Raven, the little Raven Boy's amazement when Sky Chief oh so delicately took the lid off the first box and the stars spilled out. Millions of twinkling stars suddenly filled the room, and just as suddenly, they flew out in a spiral through the smoke hole in the roof. Raven Boy, his mother, and grandfather stood speechless. Never in his wildest dreams had Sky Chief imagined the, the stars would escape out the smoke hole and then they spread into the night sky. Befuddled, Grandfather closed his special box and put it immediately back on its shelf. But Little Raven Boy wasn't finished. The stars filled the night sky, but special light still shone from within the box. And so it started all over again, the frantic screaming and cawing, the worrying mother and reluctant grandfather, and once again, humbled and confused by his grandson's sheer passion, Sky Chief agreed to open a second box. This time, when grandfather opened the second box, the round moon leaped out, leaving little raven boy absolutely enraptured and cackling with delight. Then just as suddenly, the bright moon flew out the smoke hole too and cast a silvery light into the dark night sky. Once again, Sky Chief and his daughter stood stunned. Shaking his head and muttering to himself, Grandfather knew he was losing the precious lights he had never thought to share with anyone. And so, for a second time, Feeling forlorn and defeated, 
Sky Chief put the box away. Yet little Raven Boy's eyes remained transfixed for the warm and golden light emanating from that last and innermost box still shone. This was the light that Trickster had come for, and he knew he must have it. It was now or never. So this time, little Raven Boy went all out, resorting to the classic toddler antics. Wailing and arching his back, he flung himself backwards and fell onto the floor, kicking and cawing and making an escándalo. Now his mother was really alarmed. And this time she pleaded openly with Sky Chief, Please, father, let him play with it just this once. Look at him, poor soul. Sky Chief looked at his daughter and back at his wailing grandson. He sighed and surrendered. Once again, he reached for the precious box and one by one, he began taking lids off the different boxes until at last he came to the innermost box. And ever so slowly and meticulously, he took off the last lid. Then, in a flash of an eye, a small red ball burst forth. And seizing the moment, our improvising trickster shape-shifted back into a, to Raven, and like a brave arrow, he flew straight at the red ball. Grabbing it in its beak, Raven flew up and out the smoke hole before Sky Chief or his mother could utter a word. Triumphant at last, Raven flew over mountains and lakes, the sun in his beak and his heart on fire. And when finally he spit out the red ball, it grew into the sun and lit up the land as far as the eye could see. And Raven flew on. And as he flew, uh, rivers and lakes were born from the saliva that fell from his mouth. And so were the salmon that feed the people to this day. No one knows whether it was the ashes from the smoke hole, or getting burned from holding the sun in its beak. But Raven's white feathers turned jet black that day. And that is how we know Raven today. Aho. The trickster archetype has many faces. Raven and Coyote are perhaps most well-known. In her book, The Female Trickster, The Mask That Reveals, Jungian author Ricky Tannen points out that the trickster uses its energy not to maintain power and control, but rather to integrate and unite the paradoxical through humor. As we find in the Raven creation myth, the stars, moon, and sun were not the sky chiefs to hoard and keep the world in darkness. Raven frees the light, not as a noble act, but rather because he wanted that light and knew he must have it. And so through his many wild antics, Raven served humanity and the more than human family, who until then had been living in darkness. As Tannen noted, the trickster is a forerunner of the savior. And like the savior, they are both animals 
and God-humans at once. The trickster's humor and energy are adopted as strategic, subversive, and transformative devices aimed at revolution, not just revolt. These are Tannen's words. In the arts, she says, the trickster archetype manifests through an individual imagination as the channel of transformation for the greater cultural collective. Certainly, stealing the light from the sky chief and bringing it to the world in darkness was a subversive and revolutionary act. Likewise, when we bring what is unconscious to consciousness, light to the darkness, that too is revolutionary and an evolution of consciousness in a kairos and opportune moment that demands just that. As trickster, astrologer, and wordsmith extraordinaire Caroline Casey of Coyote Network News reminds us, better a trickster than a martyr be. On a personal note, the raven has been my enigmatic and constant companion and guardian since early childhood. The raven was first introduced to me by my mother. The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe was one of the select poems she read and recited regularly her entire life. This 19th century Gothic classic mourns the death of the beloved maiden Lenore. It is assumed that Poe mourns his young wife here, Virginia Eliza Clem, who died at 25. The opening stanza sets the stage for his mythic descent. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. "'Tis some visitor,' I muttered, tapping at my chamber door." Only this and nothing more. As Jungian analyst Donald Kalshed tells us, the mythic descent gives image to the suffering of the self. The underworld journey, in his words, is an outpicturing of the unconscious of a trauma survivor. Individuation can be seen as a consciously guided mythic descent. As we find, Poe's raven is certainly darker in tone than the raven from the Tlingit creation myth, yet he is a trickster here nonetheless, as we find out. The rich cadence and uncanny storytelling can be seen as the creative expression of his mythic descent. Ah, distinctly I remember, it was in the bleak December. And each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow, vainly I had sought to borrow from my books surcease of sorrow, sorrow for the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore, nameless here forevermore. Maiden is a term relegated to fairy tales, myth, and Shakespeare, and which Poe qualifies throughout the raven with adjectives like beloved, rare, and radiant. 
Drawing from etymology, the maiden is a virgin. A woman loses that status when she becomes sexually active. In the context of the raven, however, the maiden is lost through death. That said, a maiden or virgin also refers to a woman unto herself, as the Greek goddesses Athena and Artemis exemplify. It is in this context, then, that I consider the maiden archetype in today's episode. And by extension, it is when we give birth that we are no longer unto ourselves. We lose our maidenhood and move into what Dr. Alexandra Sachs calls matrescence. That is the psychological development into motherhood. In Western modernity, we have no initiation rites which honor these profound life changes. And so, these crucial phases of our lives come and go without any meaningful awareness or mythic reference or ritual invocation or beauty to honor and frame them. Rites of passage, on the other hand, honor these profound life changes and bring deep understanding to the transition and the myth we are participating in. That said, in today's culture, people have children when they are in their 30s and even early 40s. And so, having enjoyed the freedom of maidenhood longer, they are more consciously prepared for motherhood. Of course, this is not the case for everyone. It certainly wasn't true for me or most of the women of my generation who began having our babies in our early 20s just out of college. Nor is it true for teen mothers or for those who suffered trauma as children, who lost not only their maidenhood, but their childhood as well. For those having experienced any of these circumstances, the loss of the maiden and its grief could find its dark expression in the vast and complex world of postpartum blues. Though this may not be true for all, this grieving is sometimes Oh, excuse me, is something heretic in patriarchy and something we are shamed for. And with that, we return to the raven. Ghastly, grim, and ancient raven, wandering from the nightly shore, tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's Plutonian shore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. In Gothic lit- literature, death and horror are invoked and tied to the supernatural. From a Jungian lens, the raven reads like an encounter with the shadow, which is projected onto the raven. In brief, the shadow, in Jungian terms, is the dark aspects of the personality, those wounded, frightened, and mean parts of ourselves that we reject and bury. The shadow is emotionally charged, usually with our baser instincts, and is always present. The more deeply buried it is, the more autonomous it becomes. Jealousy is a perfect example of the shadow's autonomy. When triggered, the shadow pops up to embarrass us at best. It can turn savage. Until it is made conscious, the shadow is projected outward with no moral accountability. Instead, the blame is placed on the person or event who triggered the shadow. When the shadow is collective, countries go to war. One of the darkest shadows in human history is the Inquisition. 
Demonizing women was a way for the celibate men of the church to deal with their terror of women and their sexuality. As Jungian analyst Lionel Corbett tells us, the Inquisition showed how some men could project their own psychological disorders and vices onto others, purging them in projection instead of confronting their inner difficulties or shadows. This purging is key and sinister. During the Inquisition, the worst torture devices in human history were created in the name of Christ. Spreading across centuries and continents, the Inquisition ensured patriarchal control. The collective trauma and repercussions of the Inquisition still ripple across the globe, particularly for women. That said, when the shadow is consciously brought to light, with all its dreadful feeling tones, we take moral accountability and begin to integrate our shadow rather than project it outwards, as Poe appears to be doing here. We recall the Catholic Church demonized animals like the crow and raven. It is understandable, then, that Poe would have chosen this mysterious blackbird to reflect his darkest hour. Prophet, said I, thing of devil, prophet still, if bird or devil, whether tempter sent or whether tempest tossed thee here ashore, desolate yet all undaunted, on this desert land enchanted, on this home by horror haunted, tell me truly, I implore, is there, is there balm in Gilead? Tell me, tell me, I implore. Quoth the raven, Nevermore. Nevermore is the raven's only refrain throughout, a a definitive negation echoing the poet's existential despair. Again, we find the trickster archetype here, albeit through a glass darkly. One of the roles of the trickster is as a mirror to provide a reflection of the larger and archetypal story. Here, the haunted poet's late-night visitor gives creative expression to a descent into the mythic underworld. Indeed, the death of his beloved Lenore would have opened the portal between the worlds of the living and the dead. As we have seen in previous episodes, this veil opens during birth as well. In this vein, Poe continues to paint the raven's trickster as mirror. Startled as the stillness broke by reply so aptly spoken, doubtless, said I, what it utters is its only stock and store. Caught from some unhappy master, whom unmerciful disaster followed fast and followed faster, till his songs one burden bore, till the dirges of his hope that melancholy burden bore, of never, nevermore. The narrator, or Poe, is the raven's unhappy master, upon whom unmerciful disaster fell. And still more clearly in the following stanza, the poet confesses he and the raven are one. And the raven, never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting on the pallid bust of Pallas just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming, and the light blight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor. 
and my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore. The poet's soul lies in the raven's shadow where he is overpowered by the grief and caught up in the underworld. Recall only the trickster and mythic heroes can traverse the underworld realms and return. In this stanza, Poe also invokes Pallas, curiously, another maiden whose life was taken too swiftly. In Greek mythology, Pallas was the daughter of the sea god Triton. She was accidentally killed in a mock battle with the warrior goddess Athena, daughter of Zeus. Distracted by angels sent from her father Zeus, Athena plunged her spear right into the maiden's heart. In her sorrow and regret, Athena took her name and called herself Pallas Athena ever since. Again, we see here the mourning of the death of the maiden, which I argue is archetypal in nature. As I reread The Raven, its bewitching cadence and uncanny storytelling, I understand my mother's appreciation for it more deeply and on different levels. Paying homage to both the maiden, it gives voice to the poet's grief and acts as a portal into his mythic descent. Its deep resonance in English literature speaks to the archetypal nature of grief, as well as to the loss of the maiden as well. While my mother may well have mourned her maidenhood gone too soon, her postpartum blues were triggered most pointedly by the death of my brother, when I was still an infant. He died in a routine surgery. It turns out he was allergic to the anesthesia and never woke up. The grief settled over the family in my earliest months and overcame my mother, throwing wide open the portal between worlds. Our soul bond, however, was not broken because we were not separated when she experienced her blues. I was five months old and my brother was five years old. As it happens, five is the mother, excuse me, five is the number of the goddesses of love and beauty, Venus and Oshun. Like Sharatanga, they are caretakers of the womb and fertility. This many moons later, I like to imagine my mother and I, and all pregnant people and their infants, in the embrace of these ancient goddesses. We know the baby in the womb experiences not only the physical, but the emotional states of the mother or pregnant parent. To that, I would add, the infant and parent share the realms of the psyche as well. In an ensouled worldview, we are joined in the world soul. But I believe the soul bond between birthing parent and infant are unique in that they are more intimately bound together. We recall that Jung called the bond between them, he said that they shared the, the same psychic atmosphere. In this regard, if the birthing parent is separated from the infant when they are hospitalized for postpartum depression, the infant is left orphaned psychologically, abandoned. As mentioned in earlier episodes, this cruel separation is practiced in the U.S. due to insurance policies. Until the trauma of this separation is brought consciously to the light, however, 
and treated with love and compassion, the repercussions of that severed bond can last a lifetime for both the mother and the infant. As I said, I was fortunate in that my mother was not hospitalized during her postpartum depression, nor were we separated, despite its severity. She stayed home to grieve, and my father hired nannies to care for my sisters and me. Though my mom's journey was never really discussed, the shadow of it lived on in the psyche, and like shadows do, they pass from generation to generation, until, like raven, we shapeshift and steal this light and cast it into the darkness. Through individuation, we dare not only to find and face the shadow, but to feel it. Remembering that we are not just flesh, but we are heart and soul. Perhaps this explains in part my mother's fascination with the raven. Its haunting narrative gave image to her own mythic descent as she grieved the loss of her son. And with that, we turn to my personal raven lore and postpartum blues story. For me, the raven in my life manifest literally. Black feathers, raucous calls, and all of the escándalo that accompanies the trickster. I was 16, disenchanted with the all-girls Catholic high school I attended and my turbulent home life. I was the lost maiden. Having no viable transportation to and from school, I would sometimes wander slowly through the park or hitchhike along a sketchy boulevard. This was the early 70s, the hippie Shangri-La, so hitchhiking was not uncommon. That's when I first noticed the raven. He appeared to be following me as I walked. Like my sister's dog, raven would meander ahead, then wait, perched on a fence or tree branch to make sure I was coming, and then fly on ahead as I caught up. This carried on into the summer, when Raven followed me to work on my bike. He or she would sit perched in the big oak tree until I was finished, and then accompany me back home. On one occasion, the boyfriend came to join me for lunch. He had just gotten out of the car and was walking to greet me when Raven shot like an arrow from the oak tree and flew straight for his head, cawing and screeching, claws out. Naturally, the boyfriend ran back to his car and slammed the door shut. This happened three times. The boyfriend was laughing ner nervously as he rolled down the window, pleading, call him off. But I had no clue what this truck trickster was up to, nor how to call him off, or her. What was obvious, though, was that Raven did not approve. Fair enough. My relationships with the opposite sex were always based on hormones and complexes. Unintegrated shadow, you might say. In this regard, the raven comes forth as protector guardian for me. Raven was also present throughout my undergraduate years at UC Berkeley, where I lived away from home. My parents would chortle when I would sometimes arrive unannounced because the ravens would have gathered in their yard ahead of time and signaled my return. This was pre-cell phone days. Then, in December of 1978, a year after I had graduated, I landed in London 
four months pregnant. Ah, distinctly, I remember. It was in the bleak December, when each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. I was pregnant with my first and en route to the Netherlands for a home birth. As a Mexican California girl, nothing had prepared me for that dark, cold winter or its isolation. My first night in Europe, I dreamed the raven died in a ghastly fairy tale like setting. I wo- woke up in horror. Since the numinous is a sensation rarely experienced in church, I believe the numinosity of horror is what makes Gothic literature and horror films so popular. Poe ca- captures the sensation of the numinous throughout the raven and the silken, sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before. In Jungian depth psychology, dreams like myth are the living language of the soul. Read metaphorically, as opposed to concretely, they reflect our personal myth. When we engage dreams, get curious about them, write them down, give them creative expression, they give image to the conflict and help to resolve it. Though we often forget our dreams, nightmares are the soul's way of demanding our attention. Some dreams are big dreams, and for me, this nightmare was one of them. I grew up in a family who shared our dreams at the kitchen table. We still share dreams. However, lacking Jungian background at the time, I had no mythic reference for this trickster and so was unable to decipher such a nightmare. And despite Raven's presence throughout my life, Poe's gothic Raven was the deepest framework I had for understanding this ebony blackbird at the time. Here we began to glimpse the role of myth and dreams in Jungian depth psychology. I understand this dream nightmare now as an omen, pretending the maiden Persephone's abduction into the mythic underworld. In a kind of shadow synchronicity, the etymological root of the name Nederlands or Netherlands means the lands beneath or lower lands. That is because one-third of the country is literally below sea level. The other two-thirds are only a thousand feet above it. Their remarkable systems of dikes, canals, and dunes keep the deep sea at bay, or the underworld from crashing in. But for me, those systems proved futile. In Jungian thought, we recall the sea is another image of the unconscious, unmythic underworld. The long, dark months of steel gray skies, falling snow, barren trees, and frozen lakes of, of the Netherlands became my mythic underworld. As Kalshid suggests, the descent to the underworld is a descent into the hell of our psyche, the cut-off affects and emotions where we suffer the truth of ourselves. The nine circles of the mythic underworld give image to the layers of suppression and dissociation. This is the shadow work and integral to individuation. While trauma and its affect can be suppressed through alcohol, drugs, pharmaceuticals, or manic tendencies, 
the shadow does not disappear. Being buried, it takes root and manifests as the tyrants, monsters, and furies that control our lives and relationships. This is true both personally and collectively. In this way, my raven nightmare spoke of childhood traumas that would nest themselves in my body and soul and manifest as the deep despair of those long months. As the icy, wintry days passed, seasonal affective disorder, whose acronym is appropriately SAD, set in, triggering the peri- and postpartum moods and anxiety disorders that followed. The existential angst was real. All that I had neatly tucked away, suppressed, denied, and dissociated from would find expression in my depression. I recall once dreaming I was fleeing the Nazis, swimming in the icy waters of the North Sea. This gave image to my own fleeing, perhaps, of, of the shadow. But it spoke as well to the nature of the pregnant woman's psyche, which I believe is more open to the collective psyche. For less than 40 years earlier, the, the Netherlands was under Nazi occupation. Whenever the Dutch underground retaliated, the Nazis marched into churches on Sundays and swept up the young men. All were suspect. My former fa father-in-law was one of these young men who spent years in a Nazi concentration camp. I never met him as he died young of cancer. It is understandable that the repercussions of that terrorism were still very much reverberating in the Dutch countryside and their collective psyche. In the meantime, to prepare for childbirth, I swam three times a week at an indoor pool, of course. I took pregnancy yoga and birthing classes. I also poured over Ina May Gaskin's book, Spiritual Midwifery, and then spent the rest of the day napping. In this liminal state, the raven became my uncanny visitor. As I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. As I was in and out of sleep, the raven's image appeared perched inside the triangular window above the foot of my bed. His wings were outspread before a blazing candelabra, which was stood behind him, and he seemed to watch over me, as he always did when I wandered in uncharted waters. Not knowing the raven creation myth, however, I did not recognize raven as a trickster who could see in the darkness, nor even as my guardian who had always watched over me. My deepest frame of reference went back to Poe's gothic raven, hailing from the night's plutonian shore. As a ritual artist, I would have known to light a candle and smudge to honor the raven as guardian, as well as calm any fears associated with the raven, and to cleanse and prepare the home where I would give birth, the grounds undoubtedly under Nazi control at one point. But back then, I was just a forlorn maiden abducted by Hades. My vision was expanded, but bathed in the blues. I journaled through it all, 
And today, give thanks for the raven, for watching over me, for his curiosity and ability to see in the darkness, to shapeshift and claim light in the midst of that darkness. Again, we see the role and power of myth and dreams in the Jungian approach. Not to be taken literally, myths and dreams are the soul's language, metaphors. They are archetypal in nature. They guide, compensate, and correct our otherwise limited and oppressive mundane consciousness. Dreams and myth give image to the inner conflict and bring resolution to its outward manifestations. So do art and ritual art in this context. In closing, my word of advice for those suffering the postpartum blues, find guidance. Recall the mythic heroes who had to wander the mythic underworld had guides. Dante had Virgil, and Odysseus had the seer Tiresias. Like Raven, they could navigate the darkness. Get curious. Learn to read your symptoms metaphorically as opposed to concretely. Ask yourself, what myth are you in? Another maiden swept into the underworld too soon? Persephone, raptured by Hades? Remember, Persephone also became queen of the underworld, which she ruled with Hades, whom, as Jungian scholar Saffron Rossi tells it, she grew to love Hades. Also, Recall that Persephone had her freedom to wander the earth six months of the year. Ask yourself, are you mourning your freedom, your maidenhood cut off too soon? Maybe not. Again, get curious. And either way, honor your postpartum blues. Journal, draw, doodle, paint, sculpt. Let the art speak for the soul in despair. Its beauty is medicine too. As Hillman reminds us, the soul is born in beauty feeds on beauty, requires beauty for its existence. Likewise, if it calls to you, incorporate ritual art. Make your home your temple. Light a candle. Smudge your home with the resin of your choice. Create an altar. Invoke the goddesses and our sacred archetypes of your choice. Read their myths and stories with other mothers. The Blessing Way Ceremony is an American indigenous tradition for the woman in her eighth month of pregnancy. I was fortunate to receive a blessing way with my third daughter, and I learned to perform them as well for friends. I learned to chant for this ceremony in the early 80s from Janine Parvati, the midwife extraordinaire and astrologer. Oh, great spirit, make me strong as a bear. The earthly wisdom of this chant recognizes that both birthing and mothering requires the strength of a mother bear. In our patriarchy, however, no one tells you motherhood is the hardest job on the planet, nor is it honored as such. I also suggest invoking Raven from the creation myth, as I have here. For one, all creation myths have the power to create anew. Invoke Raven's ability to see in the darkness. Let its trickster antics mirror and conjure laughter. Also good medicine. Watch comedy classics. And perhaps most importantly, spend time in nature. Take regular walks or hikes. Go to a river or beach. 
swim or stand at the foot of a waterfall and receive the mist that, and ecstasy that it gives off? Give thanks to the Mother Earth. When we step from the mundane into the mythic, we reclaim these powerful seasons of our lives as sacred and as our own and no longer outsource them by default. It takes courage to face, feel, and give creative expression to that which haunts us. But remember, through childbirth, we also become warriors, as discussed in an earlier episode. In this kairos, an opportune moment, it is time to reclaim the strength of the ancestral feminine wisdom which is rising up from the earth. Si se puede. Finally, I close with a raven synchronicity that you could say for... ...in front of my Mexican candelabra. Later in passing... I was stunned to find the combined image of the raven sitting in front of the candelabra. It mirrored almost exactly the image from over 40 years ago of the raven perched in the triangular window above the foot of my bed in the Netherlands, its wings outspread in front of a blazing candelabra. When I created, this was a numinous moment for sure. When I created this altar, I had no idea I would follow the theme of postpartum blues from my first season. Or in Cornelia Tay's words, I had no thought of returning to this darkened room forgotten at the end of a hallway in a castle. An appropriately gothic description. A few short weeks later, I came upon Linda Winter's disturbing article in the New Yorker magazine, discussed in my third and, and uh, second episodes, which is where I first met my guest, or I, which is where I met my first guest, and the synchronicities just began to follow with each of the brave and beautiful women interviewed in this se interviewed this season, from Cristina Valdivia to Thea Palencia, as well as D uh, Dama in my most recent episode. In retrospect, even Winter's last name takes on metaphoric symbolism. As many of us experienced our postpartum blues in the depths of winter in icy, wintry countries. As grim as it was, I give thanks for Winter's article for it gave birth to a transformational first season of Blue Medicine Journal, a Jungian podcast. I love the magic of synchronicity. It always reminds us that we are part of a larger cosmic and unfolding story in an ensouled, communicative, and enchanted world. Thank you so much for joining me. Until next new moon, stay curious and feed your soul. <laughs>